communities that do have genuine dog friendliness and at varying degrees, they are safer generally than other communities. Um, they are much healthier. They have better economic opportunities and vibrancy. They're obviously more humane and more welcoming and they're more responsible. In my opinion, you cannot have a dog friendly community unless you have responsible dog owners. It's just, you have to have one to have the other. Welcome to the Wear, Wag, Repeat podcast. I'm Tori Mystic. As a dog mom lifestyle expert, blogger, and business owner, I love talking to other women in the pet industry and sharing their advice with you every week. Sit, stay, and listen to the latest episode. In this episode, I'm talking to Beth Miller to learn about the research she does at Wagtown about dog friendliness, how to define what that even means, and how we can make our own towns more dog friendly. Beth shares her insight into the complications of working with local government and regulations. We discussed how a lot of laws surrounding pets are related to public health and safety and don't address the benefits of having dogs in the community. Now that dogs are considered a part of the family in our society, some of those regulations could use an update. Of course, dog-friendly communities are great for local pet industry businesses. It turns out that pet friendliness and innovation go hand in hand. So what can you do to make your own local community more vibrantly dog-friendly? Well, Beth has a lot of advice. So let's get into it. After you listen, please come over to the Wear, Wag, Repeat Labs Facebook group and comment on the post about this episode. I'd love to brainstorm ways to positively impact dog friendliness in our own towns. Do you live in a dog friendliness desert? There is now a resource to help you change the world one wag at a time. Beth Miller, the founder of the nonprofit Wagtown, took a giant and scary leap from a lucrative C-suite in the advertising agency business to chase a vision. She created her nonprofit to find and spread the secret sauce for dog-friendly regions. Since her jump, her organization has amassed the largest research base on dog-friendly communities. Beth uses her subject matter expertise to develop Wagtown programs, projects, change culture initiatives, and products that inspire and support animal advocates. From consulting and K-1 curriculum to Wagtown dog trails and legislative initiatives, Beth is the bridge between we want to be dog-friendly to we are authentically and responsibly dog-friendly. Hi, Beth. Hello there. How are you, Tori? I'm doing really good. I'm so excited to catch up with you and learn about all that you've been doing. We met like, I don't know, three, four years ago. Yeah, I think it was 17. Something like that. I'm very yeah, bad with yeah. years. A while. <laughs> yeah, we won't talk about how long we've been around, right? <laughs> um, but you were just starting Wagdown when I met you. And since then, you have done all kinds of things. Um, so to start off with, you've come up with this term, dog friendliness desert, which, you know, is kind of a play on like, I guess, a food desert, um, mm-hmm. which people are familiar with. Um, yep. So, so what is, what is a dog friendliness desert? Well, that's a great question. 
A lot of people over the last few years, as you know, my first year and a half was just research. So I did 500 interviews plus all over the United States. And it was really about finding out if you plop a poodle into a town, as I say, what is the ripple effect? And what does that affect in terms of access and quality and quantity of service, you know, all those things. And what we've discovered is that it really is, there is no one definition of dog friendly. And I, while I hate to say that, I think that's the best possible answer because I think that dog friendliness in your town should be different than what it is in my town, not necessarily in certain core factors, but in the way that you approach it, in the way that you celebrate it, in the way that you support that business and things like that. So you can see those things happening, but what you see, what you see just like in a dog um, friendly desert being like a food desert, it comes down to that there is no social equity for it. So people want to have that dog friendly communities, but there, there really is a dividing factor between the decision to prioritize that and it can change the entire culture of the community. So in terms of like limited access, well, we talked about pillars that we discovered through our research. So communities that do have genuine dog friendliness and at varying degrees, they are safer generally than other communities. Um, they are much healthier. They have better economic opportunities and vibrancy. They're obviously more humane. They're more welcoming and they're more responsible. In my opinion, you cannot have a dog friendly community unless you have responsible dog owners. It's just, you have to have one to have the other. Um, you know, we just feel like that's the one thing that can bring everything crashing down because then you start to get the pushback of, well, I, we would love to offer ability for dogs to come on our patios, but when they do come, people let them off leash or they're on a flexi leash and they're all over the place or they're allowed to stand on the table and things like mm -hmm. that. So there's that, um, the ability to give access. Now the access, just like with food deserts is, do I have access within my reach? So is it accessible from, with the mode of transportation that I have? So a lot of those look within one mile. What I would look for in dog friendliness is it, is it within 10 to 15 minutes from me? So then you have the issue of quantity, quality, and kinds of options for each one of those pillars. So you may have a vet, but if you live in an area that's dense enough where you require you know, different kinds of veterinary practice, whether it be urgent care, home, home, um, homeopathic care, if you want more holistic options, um, go the standard veterinary route, if you need a televet, all those things. Living in a community like that where you know you have great veterinary support, that's just one component of that. So if you live in a space where you don't have um, access to people like the, you know, the bazillion people that are making the dog space even better, which is all of the entrepreneurs that are filling up that, all those pet niches, and we're seeing that rise uh, exponentially because of COVID and just because it was already going there. The dog ownership and all of that numbers for really any pets, but dogs especially, just skyrocketing over the last decades. And our behaviors and our attitudes toward them have also changed. So we expect more out of our town. So what was dog friendly in the same town 10 years ago is completely different than the expectations now. So when I was growing up, our dog was on a chain link tied to the post of the deck. And, you know, that was how we let her out and she would just hang out there and, you know, and we didn't see that as being wrong. That was just what you did with dogs. And I, now I would never do that, you know, right. but I also am not the person who, you know, paints the toenails and wears the outfits that match my dog. So there's, you know, there's this huge um, variability in terms of how you love your dog. And I feel like, you know, we had Rocky who was a big, great Pyrenees. And so he wasn't as conducive to like cute outfits and things like that. But I, I miss it because I had my, with my cocker, you know, that's just adorableness to, you know, to a man with <laughs> some cute stuff, right? And we were a group with, 
with your cocker spaniel yeah. is just adorable. <laughs> so, you know, it just kind of depends on what your relationship is with like your, with your dog and how much you want to celebrate your togetherness. And those I think are the things that are missing sometimes in communities. So I just talked with Willem Winnie yesterday. She developed a, a website called Pack Hire and it allows people to find jobs or start jobs by finding niches that are open in their market. And it goes everything from a vet tech to the director of veterinary medicine at Banfield. They want to have the whole spectrum. So eventually getting to a point where you could list that you need a job at this point, it's like, it's kind of like indeed for dog, the dog space. So, you know, I love the fact that they're doing that. So that's another example of they're facilitating a better business environment for people to be successful if they decide to do what I did, which was, you know, Geronimo off the cliff saying, ah, you know, and one of the things that I find um, interesting about that with people being able to take that leap is then you're saying that this is a community where we, we value entrepreneurialism, but we also value the, um, the safety nets that are available for businesses in addition to the safety nets for animals. So when you talk about the outcomes for dog friendliness, like for welcoming, that applies to welcoming dogs like off-leash areas and access to patios. And then there's access and welcoming for humans is if I don't have a dog or if I'm afraid of dogs or I have allergies, are there options in my community for me to eat places where I'm not going to encounter dogs? And, you know, it does it fit with the brand of the restaurant or the retailer? And then there's also the business and corporate. So like, for example, Google chose to build a facility in Austin. And one of the reasons with it, that they're dog friendly. So if that's something that's going to bring, you know, a ton of economic impact to your community, it only makes sense to prioritize that as one of the quality of life factors in the community. So having, having a dog friendliness factor, which, you know, it can be different for everyone, but it can make, like you said, communities healthier, safer, more innovative, more welcoming, all of these things, those go kind of go hand in hand, but does one have to come first? Um, does, do the dogs have to come first or does the innovation have to come first? Because like you said, you know, our attitudes towards dogs have changed so much in the last 20 years. And even I think in the last five years changed so much. Um, but you know, city legislature is notoriously not very adaptive and innovative and doesn't, hasn't changed much in the last five or 10 years. So how, how do we balance that? You know, what has to come first? Well, that's a really great sticking point because of the fact that when you have um, all of those components to get, coming together and you don't have a plan for it, that's, I think, where things start to go awry. So you were talking about um, the process of how do you get there and um, how do you prioritize that? I think a lot of it, to your point about legislature and ordinances and zoning for certain things, a lot of those things were in place to control um, the ability or to, to control the amount of safety issues, health issues, um, you know, uh, whether or not you have licensing, vaccinations, a lot of like nitty gritty of owning a dog. And they don't really address access or the human factor that is benefited by having the dogs in the community. And it also doesn't address what the behavior and the expectations are for when the dogs are in those places, because they haven't endorsed it and publicly said, this is how we'd like for this to be. And here's how you should behave when you're in there. So like we helped change the law in the state of Ohio until 2018, it was illegal to go to a patio with your pup. So that got changed. And a lot of it was, you know, what's the health impact? What's the public health issue? And we looked all over the place, couldn't find much. The, the closest we could find was the state of California, public health, did a study to see if dogs were affecting public health. 
And they said they could find no evidence of that. So a lot of it is like, you know, just old feelings about how we, how we do uh, the dog thing. And it used to be that you owned a dog, which technically you still do, but now it's more like, it's a part of my family. This is, yes. if you, you know, how many people are in your family? Six, five humans. But I said six, because that's like, that's one of the kids. Right. Yeah. And so I think that recognition of doing that is really powering the demand for that, that shift to change. And when you don't have those things in place, that's when you start to see dog friendliness happening, what I would call by accident. So not to pick on them, but Key West was listed in our secondary research as a hotspot to check out for dog friendliness. A lot of it was based on access and, and celebration of dogs and things like that. But when we went down there, um, it was sort of like dog friendly, that it, forcibly dog friendly, I guess, that people were like, we want to be this way. I know Key West is sort of like whatever goes, right? Yeah, and it's the same barefoot. thing with the dogs. They have significant issues with animal welfare issues and humane treatment and investigation. So there are a lot of people down there, but they're also so far down there. They have issues with like getting dogs to the mainland and back for adoption, for instance, and competing resources. So there's not a lot of collaboration between the agencies that are trying to create a safety net and the fact that there, you know, there are some logistic issues because they're so far down there. And then you have weather issues. I know we, we met with one shelter group that every morning they have to empty traps to get 30 to 50 rats out of their area before they can start working with the de- with the animals that day. It's just, wow. it's insane. And then you go right down the road and there's this Taj Mahal, of, you know, so it's the inequity in there that again, sends this message of, you know, some people can have dog friendliness and it can be great. And other people, you just can't. And that, um, that lack of equity across the United States is, is really glaring. But when you live in it, you don't even know that it's there. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So I think that's that's the trip that need, people need to take is you have to define what it means for your community and then figure out, you know, legally, like if you, a friend of mine just called me the other day and he is what I've called a breed specific legislation refugee. So he, let's say that he got a job in Boulder a few years ago and they found the perfect place. He can commute easily. Um, it, it's fits their budget. It has all the amenities that they need. And then he finds out that if he moves to Boulder with his pit bull, they can come to his house, take the dog and put it down. So now he is looking for residency outside of the area. That's going to take him longer to commute. It's going to be an economic impact on him, which he won't be compensated for. And he, he can't live. You know, you think I'm going to live in Boulder. How awesome is that? And then you show up there and you realize that just based on face value, that they'll put an animal down without even evaluating it. Right. So, you know, that's, that's one of those things where you can, really change people's ability to make transitions in their lives or to get up the corporate ladder or to explore new opportunities as an entrepreneur. You know, let's say that you wanted to be in the pet space in in Boulder, like all the, all the possibilities that are smooshed down because of that mindset. Mm -hmm. Because when you have that mindset, it's hard to also have the mindset that they deserve to be with us and taken care of better and really prioritize more in our lives as a part of our family. So that's, that's really a, um, a big, a big ticket, so to speak, item on, on the, what you need to do. Right. So we encourage people to get involved with legislation. If you have a lot of places, you can look up to see when there are dog cases in the courts because people don't show up for those hearings. And when they don't show up for those hearings, the judge is thinking, it's just a dog. I have murders right after this case. And it really doesn't matter that much. So they usually give minimal sentences, if anything, because they've got a lot on their plate. So I get that. But when there's a group of people in the courtroom, when that verdict comes in and when they're deliberating what they want to do with that, 
it it makes a difference in my opinion to have them understand that it's valued in the community and that's what happens when you have dog friendliness come on strong for that are you enjoying this interview if you'd like to continue talking about dogs and business with the added support of a like-minded community get on the wait list for wear wag repeat society This is my monthly membership program for women petpreneurs and pupfluencers who are looking for accountability and support to make bark-worthy breakthroughs in their business. It's amazing what you can accomplish when you're surrounded by the right people and their dogs. (laughs) Join the waitlist now at wearwagrepeat.com slash society. Yeah, that's that seems like a really easy way to um, just get the attention of the people who are making the laws in your city um, and who are, are signing off on things in your city to show them that dogs matter to mm-hmm. to to the community. And I think that example about Boulder, I mean, that's so specific, but just at a, at a broader scale, you know, places that aren't dog friendly, you know, people base their vacations where they're going to go on how dog friendly it is. And if they can stay somewhere dog friendly. Um, and if, if you can't, it's likely that a dog person's not going to go there. Um, so I think the same would apply if you're considering moving to a new city and it's not dog friendly. Um, so cities and vacation destinations can really be missing out on a ton of people and business and everything by not welcoming. I'd love to know the economic impact of not being dog friendly. I mean, it's got to be significant. When we were in Park Slope in Brooklyn, two realtor groups told us that a um, no one's really coming out of the gate asking first, how are the schools? The first question out of their mouths is where can I take my dog? I mean, that's huge. Cause I mean, that's what I would ask. (laughs) And they said, if they have in Austin, if they have properties that are not dog friendly, they'll sit. They'll just sit. And so they've really come to that realization that, you know, it's no longer this thing that they have to get around and, okay, we'll, we'll have it, but we're going to have all these rules and charge you more. Now they're starting to realize that pushback is big enough that I think they're eventually going to come up with better solutions. So like we just talked uh, the, a few hours ago with a gal who's working with the airlines because people are starting to schedule their flight patterns according to where their dog will have access to, you know, pet waste areas to go to the bathroom before they get on their next plane. Um, you know, is it easy for you to fly with your dog there? And, you know, there's a whole conversation about flying with your dog, right? But the bottom line is when you're there, do you feel like when you got off the flight and your dog has to go and you're trying to catch your next thing, do you want to go out and then have to go back through security? And then usually the dog waste areas in that area they're like behind some HVAC unit where I would be afraid to poop, let alone a multi-poo that's like, are you kidding me? Yeah. So it's, you know, it's, it's a big factor. And people are definitely saying, if you don't want to welcome my dog, then you're really not welcoming me. And so I, I don't to, want to um, come there. I had to fly through Charlotte with Lucy last year and, um, you know, she's a big dog. So she just walks, she's not in a carrier or anything. And I was, she didn't, she didn't pee the entire time, the entire day that we were traveling. Um, because she's just not comfortable peeing inside first of all, cause it's like her entire life. Don't do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, and we, we did, we worked on a little bit of training before I, before I went about peeing on like AstroTurf or something, but in the Charlotte airport, 
Um, there's all these signs. Like I, mean, I think the Charlotte airport is one of the nicest airports. I love go, going through there as a person, but with Lucy, I'm like following the sign for the doggy relief area. And there was like a fake fern plant and, um, just a piece of AstroTurf, like in the open, in the middle of the hallway with people walking all around and everything. And I was like, this is not ideal. <laughs> We well, you know what, though, that's where I overheard the conversations of people saying, this is why I fly, fly, fly through Charlotte because of that. I couldn't believe it was right in the middle of the, what the hallway calls in the airport, right? Yeah. You're walking to get to your gate. The terminal, and it's, yeah. Yeah, it's right in the middle of the thing. Yes. And the dogs are sitting there, you know, taking a dump. And you're like, I'm just eating my bagel before I get on the plane. So, you know, it's like, well, you know, get over it kind of thing. But it's, to me, it's, um, it's striking to see it. Like when you said, you're like, I can't believe it. And then you go to look to see where they used to go to the bathroom. And then you're like, oh, well, like, to your point, don't go inside and go potty. Well, let's give them something that sort of simu- stimulates that and simulates the experience that they're used to so that you don't have this thing where dogs are piddling. And, you know, it's, 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 it's the same thing. If you accommodate their everyday needs and behaviors, then you don't have issues. Right. You know, and it, and it really has to be all of the categories of that. So, you know, when they're dining out, are you packing a doggy bag mm-hmm. with you know, treats and something to clean up. And if they get, if they get hurt or do you have wipes, do you have, you know, a, a appropriate collar for them? Do you have a mat that they could lay down on? You know, all the stuff that you would take if you took your baby somewhere, you should be packing that for your dog, whether it be for flight or for dining out on the patio, just to show that you're prepared for anything that your dog needs. And you're also prepared if there's an issue with your dog involving humans or another dog. You know, just it's taking that extra step. And I think if we were all more responsible about that, and that includes, you know, hiring people to continually enrich your dog's lives, to give them opportunities to be desensitized to things that could be scary to them, to get over maybe some PTSD that they had from being in the, you know, next to an HVAC thing at an airport. So, you know, those people, uh, the grooming, anyone who lays a hand on a dog is formative in what kind of personality they develop. And how happy and healthy they are throughout their life. So I think it definitely needs all the way from legislation to having someone help you by walking your dog every day. All yeah. of those things contribute to staying away from being a desert because not having access to all those services. I do see the services and the more welcoming infrastructure generally does happen in areas where there's regional vibrancy and economic prosperity. Mm-hmm. So the chicken and the egg and the dog. I'm not sure what order these came in, but I do know then all of the areas that I've gone to where there's significantly dog-friendly vibe, they are all economically vibrant and they all have, I mean, you can't throw a dog biscuit without hitting some kind of pet service. It's, right. it's crazy. It's like being in Seattle and there's Starbucks everywhere. Right. Only it's groomers and walkers and behaviorists and little shops and dog hotels. And it's just, it's awesome. And when you go in there, coming from Ohio and then going to Seattle or Portland or San Diego or a lot of the stuff on the West coast, it was for me being the, the Ohio brand of dog friendly and seeing what the West uh, Western and Pacific and that's where, what Northwest areas are for dog friendliness. I felt like, man, I'm totally missing out. Yeah. I we're thought a little I bit in the dark ages it's, over here. <laughs> yes. It's crazy. And of course you're over in a very innovative. Pennsylvania, in first, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. We're probably not the first innovators on that. So yeah, that's why I think people don't realize that, you know, the attraction to relocation people to new hires, um, mm-hmm. you know, to getting people to be less sedentary, um, the health ramifications physically and emotionally for that, uh, you know, and having fewer places to learn and enrich. I think that's when you get into that desert mentality 
And you're not going to have good responsible dog owner behavior, and you're not going to in turn have good responsible dog behavior. Yeah. And the humane organizations will not be supported because people will say, you know, dogs are just a pain in my butt in this community. And they yeah. will be, they will be a pain in your butt unless we take care of them properly, because there's certainly enough of them coming into the world. If we don't have a way to take care of them and celebrate them and have them be a part of our lives, then we're just setting ourselves up for disaster and dog friendliness deserts. Yeah. So if, if dog, if responsible dog ownership, um, is, you know, one of the keys to making something dog friendly, I don't know if it's the chicken or the egg, but it's one of those, um, (laughs) being a good responsible dog owner and, and, um, putting your dog in situations where they're going to be comfortable and, you know, all, all of that kind of stuff and having your dog behave in a way that's not going to negatively impact anyone when you're out in public, how can the, the pet business owners, like so many dog sitters and dog walkers and groomers and trainers, so many people like that listen to this show. So they're kind of the front line. They're interacting with those pet parents every day. The pet parents who think, oh, my dog is my baby. I could never, you never correct him or never, you know, do this. And he just does whatever he wants. And how can those people kind of interface with these pet parents and communicate to them that responsible dog ownership would open so many more doors for dog friendliness? Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good thing to bring out because the only thing more difficult to define than dog friendliness is responsible dog ownership. <laughs> so yeah, it's tough. And I think part of the problem is like, if you take a look at like, let's say um, like the skincare line. So the general gist there when they're marketing those things to you is that there are an array of options. Some are good for your skin and some are not for other people's skin. Uh, if you have dry skin, if you have T-zone, what are, all of those things, uh, what age you are, all those things, they're factors. And so you che- you choose to amend your regimen according to what your needs are that match up with what you can afford and what makes sense for you to have in your beauty regimen. I think the same thing applies to when you're with a dog. There are a lot of different options to care for and stimulate and take care of your dog. The key is helping people understand because everybody thinks their dog is um, well-trained and everybody thinks they're responsible in general. So um, I guess maybe making, if you can just obfuscate some things that are clearly not responsible, but I think we do a little too much tearing each other down by mm. saying, well, if you don't use a clicker, you must be a bad dog owner. If you're not, you know, a lot of that kind of thinking, um, you know, I was, I've always been one of those people that's absolutely no people food ever for a dog it was always my thing. And now it's the total opposite, you know, kibble is evil and everything should be, you know, raw diet. And so, right. But somewhere in the middle of there is kind of where we live. And if we want to push it toward, you know, better care, better services, all of those things that really make a dog's life more full, also turn into the reaction and the behavior of the dog in the home and the dog in the community. So they really contribute to uh, creating the dog vibe, so to speak, and how dogs behave in that community. If you have more dogs that are socialized and walked and well-groomed, you know, grooming is a huge part of health. So people realizing that it's not just about having a cute haircut, it's about having hands on your dog and identifying you know, issues ahead of time. And, you know, it's just a really important part of it, not to mention all the things that can happen when they're not groomed well or, or frequently, right? So all the way down into, you know, the, up into the legislation. So finding your groove in those and knowing that you're part of something bigger because dog friendliness is like this strain that is, doesn't have any breaks. 
And it's just going and going and going and going and going. We're talking about a hundred billion dollars worth of you know materials coming through the pet space. And I think the big game changer there is the young entrepreneur, not young in the sense of, you know, they knew about, I guess I'll say new entrepreneur in the space. There are so many um, examples to see in other communities and examples to see online that I think people can really fine tune what the best practices are for that particular job selection, but also they need to take a look at their community and say, where are there some pain points? And that's obviously a great businesscism too, because if I'm going to find an open niche, well, that's where I'm going to start my business. And you're definitely going to find them in there. Um, if you look at places, you know, I know Seattle and Portland, I think Portland, just in their downtown area, they have 13 dog parks just downtown. Wow. Now, they're not great because a lot of them are just chicken wire with with posts, but people live down there and they need it for lunch hour or just a break. And so they're everywhere. So you can jump down, do that and get back to the office. Their culture is built up that way. So you have big dogs, little dogs, all kinds, because they know they have immediate access to areas like off-leash areas and areas to go to the bathroom and socialization with other people. So, you know, you need to look for those ways where the users and the um, non-users aren't in conflict and then find pain points where you could say, okay, I could improve the dog's lives on this side. And it would also facilitate an opportunity to have a conversation about new ideas and responsible dog ownership. Because I think when you come at somebody and say, you're not a responsible dog owner. I think it's better to say there's there some you, new yeah. thinking mm-hmm. in do- responsible dog friendliness. Did you know that now this is no longer considered to be responsible? And mm-hmm. it's understandable that it changes because just like in Ohio, it was irresponsible to take your dog on a patio because it was illegal. So therefore you're sending this message that I'm going to do whatever I want with my dog, whether it's legal or not. I think that's just as bad as saying the legal things won't let me do things with my dog. It's, it's, it's a no win for both parties. So I think the role of people who are really supporting the industry on the man on the street and in the weeds and in the trenches kind of groups, those are now also safety nets. You know, it's not just the Humane Society and SIXA and other places like that. They supply, they supply that thing of like, let's help you keep your dog where you are. They're supplying the, okay, if you can keep your dog where they are, the key to that is good training. The key to that is, you know, the enrichment, all of those things lend to an environment where people will be attracted to bringing new hires and to people relocating there. It's like, what's my dog's life going to be like when I'm here? If you don't like how your dog is going to be treated, you, you know, have businesses there where you can cheerlead for your community and say, you know, we just put in two new dog parks and this one's a smart one made by Wagtown and so cool, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. Or we're putting in a Wagtown dog trail or we developed K1 curriculum to keep kids safe around dogs. So looking for little tools like that and, you know, feel free to contact me, just bath at wagtown.org or go to wagtown.org and just reach out to me. Uh, We'll do a a quick assessment conversation with you if you'd like, because it definitely is a sliding scale as far as what's acceptable, what's not, what's expected and what's not. And sometimes it does take a fresh set of eyes. When I go to these cities and these states, I have not been there. I have not worked with these people. And I'm, like I said, I'm talking to everybody from economic development office to the person who's installing dog public art. And so the broad spectrum of that certainly allows for a lot of business niches. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and it sounds like what it comes down to, which I just think is so wonderful about the dog industry is like, we're all in this together. And, um, 
you know, we need to support each other and, you know, the, the dog walker and the groomer and the vet and the artist putting something creative on the dog walking trail, it all ties together. And, um, if we support each other, it can, it can change your entire town. Yes. Yes, it definitely could. I've seen it happen both good and both bad. And it can take something as simple as I've seen in Nashville, they had a new director at their animal resource center. And it completely changed the vibe of the of the community, how they manage at risk, how they communicate with people in terms of giving them better information, showing them what their options are, and making them not afraid of finding out more about their dog. Because there is somewhat a vibe in many communities of, I'm not going to ask that question because I don't want to look be looked at as a bad dog owner, dog parent. And I think the the message needs to be clear that we are being responsible, that we are um, respecting the boundaries that are set up right now, but we're also challenging the status quo and doing it in a way that's, that's re- you know, it's positive and it's thoughtful. So, I mean, the, the reason that I spent a year and a half just doing research was that I wanted to really understand all of the little things that you don't think of when you start doing a process like this. Some of it is the ramifications that can be a problem but there are huge upsides to it. And one of the challenges for dog friendliness is having a big enough voice at the table. Mm-hmm. When you talk about quality of life initiatives, a lot of times you'll see you know, military bases, hospital systems, big education systems, they're the ones at the table making the big regional planning decisions. They generally speaking will not include, for instance, park and rec agencies or other sort of soft product items to be in there. But they're the first ones to call you and say, can you send me materials or photos or, you know, because they want to be seen that way, but they don't necessarily want to do the work. And part of that is they're overwhelmed, especially now. Yeah. And so it really does take just a person who loves dogs that says, I'm going to champion this in my community. And then, you know, reach out to somebody like us. Well, there is nobody like us. <laughs> reach out. <laughs> and, you know, we're, that's what I love to do is to help people identify the pain points and whether it be you know, a new business that they start or going after legislative changes, whatever the case may be, it really does happen. Well, one wag at a time. I love it. Um, Well, Beth, we could continue talking for the rest of the day. Um, And I think (laughs) if anyone wants to keep talking with us, they can find you on Clubhouse certain days. Um, But but tell everyone who's listening, where, where, what's your website? Where can they find you and learn more about? um, Obviously, you you do more than we could ever cover on this podcast. So (laughs) right, right. um, Sorry about that. No, that's okay. Just uh, I'd love to, if you could share your website and everyone could find you. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. We have tons of information. Uh, we're in the process of swinging over the website. Initially, it was all about research. But now the nice thing about it is it's proof of concept stuff. So all the projects that we've been working on, a lot of those are highlighted in there. So people can kind of see what we're up to, um, how we're supporting dog friendliness in different communities and legislature, you know, all those kinds of things but also opportunities to, um, you know, get information, to download um, informational PDFs. If you're a Facebook person, we're at facebook.com slash wagtown.org. Now on there at noon, every Wednesday, um, EST, then I go live and talk with someone who is making a difference in their community with dog-friendly initiatives, whether it be new product enhancements that, you know, help the lives of dogs be better, you know, to other things involving all kinds of entrepreneurial um, combinations with philanthropy. So those are in there. Uh, obviously, we're in Clubhouse too. I'm in there as at Wagtown. So we repeat that same content in the Clubhouse because the, the you know the the shtick is a little different in there. You know, it's a little different yes. feel. So they have that, um, and then just yeah, I really um, encourage anyone who really is interested in you know getting started or finding out how to get started or at least take that first step. You know, please feel free to reach out to me. Like I said, it's just 
Beth at wagtown.org. Or just if you want to look through the website and then just go to the contact thing, it'll shoot me there. And just tell me what you're interested in. Tell me what you need help with. Um, we have, I just have so much information that I've garnered over the last few years. And the whole point of this is to change the world through dogs. And I, I really think it's possible. We're already seeing it. And I'm excited that it's in partnership with a lot of the people that you're in collaboration with as far as adding to that quality of life in a way that also helps people, you know, maintain a good standard of living, knowing that they're doing something that they're really passionate about. So big applause to your listeners. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Um, You can probably hear Lucy in the background. She's ready um, to go be the center of attention. (laughs) Absolutely. She is. Yeah. So I have to, I have to go answer to my boss, Lucy. Um, But thank you for your time today um, and for, for sharing all the amazing work that you're doing. Thank you for asking for conversation. It's always good to catch up with you and I love what you're doing. So thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you so much. What did you like most about this episode? Find me on Instagram at teamistic and let me know what intrigued you or what questions you have about starting or growing your own dog-inspired business. You can also screenshot this episode and tag me in your stories. I love to see who is listening out there. Some of the best conversations happen after the episode, right? So track me down over on Instagram or Join the Wear, Wag, Repeat Labs Facebook group to connect with other dog-obsessed entrepreneurs. And as always, you can find all the links and resources discussed in this episode at wearwagrepeat.com slash podcast. See you back here next week.